0: So, good evening, Dharma friends, fellow wayfarers. <laughs> Tonight's offering is going to be maybe a, a little different in flavour, a little more contemplative and less didactic because that was what was and wasn't emerging in this mind as it sat this afternoon with the thoughts what do these good people need to hear this afternoon or what can this what does this heart what is this heart going to produce to offer to all of you today recognizing that this is the end of five very full days of practice and a lot of information suggestions wisdom to digest and process and and maybe this this system too is digesting you know a lot of wisdom that we've heard in the hall and also the the collective wisdom that emerges in the groups where it's a real privilege to hear and be trust entrusted with privy to your experiences and the way that we kind of learn from one another in those groups can be really Moving, and so let's see what emerges, but I just invite you to to be together and this sitting with being being here with our bodies, these what's arising now in the body, and the hopes and expectations that might be here in the mind, the questions and uh, yeah let's see together. <laughs> I think one of the reasons for the the kind of feeling of satiety in this heart and mind was the uh, beautiful talk that Chris gave last night and the uh, really um, clear description of what this practice is and how it works. This uh, illumination of the Four Noble Truths and this predicament of how Dukkha gets constellated and how it dissolves, how that sense of um, thirst and grasping, clinging, contraction escalates and how the sense of self gets thicker and how it also these things not only co-arise but they co-diminish and the way that we can intervene in that process. And also with a real sense of, uh, of uh, the humanity of this, you know, how every, every aspect of our experience is worthy to be met with care and respect in this process. So there's something about this teaching that is kind of so elegant and simple, it can sound almost too simple, like it's, it, can, it can often be felt as a dismissal of the particularity of my suffering and yet I really, I, I really didn't feel that at all in the, the way that Chris expounded this to us last night. And I notice for myself when I, when I hear the Dharma, when it touches me, there's a real sense of joy that arises with that. And I had the sense yesterday evening of, of a, somehow a, a sense of joyfulness arising in maybe many hearts in this space. And that might not have been your experience because, you know, I've sat through many a talk and many a teaching where my heart has not leapt up and I felt frustrated and alienated or just my mind is not in the mood to receive in that moment. And that's just, these are just causes and conditions that are coming together and it's not a personal failing or defect if that's where our mind is. But I really hope that... uh, And I imagine that it's true because you're here on retreat and you're still here and most of you are here for your (laughs) nth retreat. It's not just your first retreat. That you know that feeling of joy when the mind actually apprehends truth in that way. When something really touches us as yes, this is how it is in my experience. And one of my favorite Parts of that, again, to to go back to the, the first teaching of the Buddha, the Dhammachaka Sutta, is the description that's in there of what happens when Kondanya gets it, when he has has his insight, as the Buddha's explaining this to him, and he has the first person to have the first insight in the wake of the Buddha's teaching, is that the, the 10,000-fold world system rocks and quakes, and this cry of, victory and delight goes up from one deva realm to the other through this 10,000 fold world system and it kind of to me that doesn't feel over the top for that for that sense of joy that arises you know when something is really seen wow there is there is a way of understanding this human predicament and there is a path out of suffering there's something here to be done, something to be done in the midst of this, and something that's doable, that's experienceable by me. You know, this is huge. So, this Dhamma is that is Ehi Pasiko, that's come and see for ourselves, it's also Pachatang. Vedita bovinuhi. it's to be experienced by each person for themselves with wisdom. You can think, I don't have any wisdom, but that's not true. You know, wisdom is there in all of us waiting to be woken up. And I'm coming to see this as actually the, you know, a way of understanding the meaning of the first two refuges of the Buddha and the Dharma. This message that there is something to be done. This is the, the fact of the Buddha's awakening. There is a way out of suffering. And the message of the Dharma, that there's a method and a path to this and that it's transmissible. It's doable by each of us. Yeah. And... Recently, I came across was was uh, a friend introduced me to a, a particular um, theory in psychology called self-determination theory, where uh, we have three. It's posited that for psychological flourishing or well-being, a human being has three basic needs, and these are and th- these are not basic survival needs. These are psychological needs, and the first two are competency and autonomy. And it feels to me like there's a correspondence here. You know, the fact that there's something that is worth doing, that can be done, gives that sense of competency. And autonomy, I too can do it. You know, I have everything that I need is available to me in this body, heart and mind to do this for myself. So just that kind of playing with that, um, the way that those resonate with these refuges of the Buddha and the Dharma. It's maybe weird to talk about autonomy and self-determination when we've been talking so much about undoing selfing, but... You know, actually, again with the selfing, it's like there is this. There's a sense of self, isn't there, that arises naturally as a part of, and we need it as a part of having taken a human birth, uh, from taking birth in a human form. That's why this selfing process arises in nature, and then the the, the task is to harness that in a way that. Um, eventually dissolves it or that dissolves the in, the clinging to it that creates this suffering just as we harness tanha we harness desire to transcend or move beyond or free ourselves from desire we we have to employ this sense of self to engage with this project of walking the path and so the question for this sense of self that's arising is what will i when i do it will lead to my long-term happiness and welfare So there's this path and it's universal and it's communicable. And that, to me, gives us the possibility of a meaningful life, which is what so many of us, you know, struggle to find and so many people are struggling to find. And to me, that is uh, wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. And something that uh, it's worth spending my life trying to uh, pursue and communicate. And at the same time, it's a really, it's not, it's a very simple, elegant algorithm. And it's really difficult to realize, isn't it? So again, I love Chris's description of the way that our day is spent kind of riding these waves of the emerging of dukkha, the emerging of self and the subsiding of it. And it's just like, you know, one wave after another. And sometimes it can feel very challenging and we can feel very alone in it. And so this is where the two refuges come with a third. And the message of the third refuge, the refuge of sangha or community is that we're not alone and also that we're not supposed to be alone. We can't do it alone. We're not meant to do it alone. And this, this feeling of aloneness is something that also you know, arises and subsides. Have you noticed that in the course of the day? You know, that we go into periods of feeling alone and periods of feeling less alone. And this third refuge also, to me, uh, has an interesting correspondence with the third need in this, in this um, self-determination model, along with auto- competency and autonomy, which is the need for relatedness or belonging, connection or belonging. And together, it, it seems to me that these three refuges kind of have the potential to meet those particular needs. So what I want to share tonight is a few reflections, contemplations around how we reconnect with that, that sense of belonging, to taste it, especially in the the times when it eludes us. And maybe the first reflection is that, you know, we have, we are not and we have never really been separate because as we uh, look deeply there is no me that's independent of everything else so Alan Watts said something uh, which I like very much he says I don't come into this world I emerge from it and a lot of the way that we that we are taught to think about ourselves is somehow I came into this world and that I came in and, way well, the story of me began, you know. But actually, from the very beginning, we have emerged from it through billions of years of evolution, through that first moment where this particular being started to constellate. And really, if you trace it back, where, where was the beginning of me? Yeah. It's a convention where I designate the beginning of me. Or it's the thing that arises with the idea of me. Yeah. This whole mind-body system emerges from and is part of nature. I'm part of the whole. I'm a piece of this earth. So reflecting on these, these elemental qualities of the body... You know, this body is made up of earth element, the same earth element here as outside us. We can't go for very long without replenishing the earth element in the body, you know, maybe a few weeks maximum. This body is also 70% or so water. You know, we can maybe go a day or two without replenishing the water also made up of the fire element of warmth and heat you know we're dependent on the energy of the sun aren't we all of us for our existence and we can probably only go a few hours without heat maybe even less in extreme conditions and then air you know? <laughs> when we wouldn't last very long without that one you know? So, in one sense, there are, you know, this body is really, this being is very much constituted of the same matter that's outside us, the same substance that's outside us. So, as we sit, there's the earth breathing. Maybe the air is listening. Maybe the fire element is knowing, who knows? I'm just playing with this. You might, if you're very rational-minded, you might think now she's, you know, getting a bit <laughs> stretching it a little bit. But it's a it's an interesting kind of contemplation to play with. And one of the practices that the Buddha suggested is in the famous teaching that he gave to his son Rahula and. Uh, Sometimes I like to think that he kind of gave the best bits to his son, as one might. And uh, there's the, the discourse where he says to Rahula, let your mind become like the earth. Let, develop a meditation that's like the earth. Develop a meditation that's like the water, like fire, like air. when we turn our mind to something the mind starts taking on the quality of that thing so another thing that another thing that he said frequently whatever we frequently think and ponder that will become the inclination of the mind if we frequently ponder these elements maybe the mind starts to take on some of the shape of these elements and the the Condition of these elements is their vastness, their spaciousness, and the fact that they don't make a personal problem out of impingements. Yeah. Yes, we maybe have a slightly different perspective than was prevalent at the time of the Buddha that it matters what we put into and onto the earth, but yet the earth doesn't take that as a personal problem. So, what is the earth doing, and who is listening, and what is breathing? All of it kind of depends on perception. And as we've talked about in the last couple of evenings, you know, the, the nature of perception is kind of uh, fundamentally empty, you know, everything depends on the position from which we're looking and the way that we're looking at things. I thought I'll read the poem View with a Grain of Sand by the Polish poet Wyslava Zimborska. Just a, a reflection on the empty nature of perception. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name, whether general, particular, permanent, passing, incorrect or apt. Our glance, our touch mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched, and that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not it's. For it, it's not different from falling on anything else with no assurance that it has finished falling or that it's falling still. The window has a wonderful view of the lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless and painless, The lake's floor exists flawlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. The water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and its waves to themselves are neither singular nor plural. They splash deaf to their own noise on pebbles neither large nor small. And all this beneath a sky, by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all, and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. The wind ruffles it, its only reason being that it blows. A second passes, a second second, A third. But they're three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news, but that's just our simile. The character is invented, his haste is make believe, his news inhuman. So this selfing and unselfing, this moving into into and out of aloneness is happening in this world that's empty of any absolute intrinsic way of being. And when the selfing subsides, our burden lightens and we're actually... Free to receive the support that's here, the support of the earth, the support of the water, the support of the fire, the support of air. All the way that nature nourishes us. And when we appreciate, if we can appreciate that, the sense of selfing also softens, doesn't it? There's a feeling of release when we appreciate The support of the ground beneath us. The support of this breath that's nourishing the body without our having to do anything to try to do anything. Have you also reflected that when there's no self, There's also no not-self, you know. No self, no other. And when that's the case, you know, how far does one's care extend? Tree, bird, chipmunk, you know. When these things are touched with awareness do they really feel separate from us? Or when we see the chipmunk, is there a sense of care that arises for the chipmunk? A sense of connection, appreciation, care for the tree? In your own experience. And I think it's easier for lots of us to feel that sense of belonging, of of non-separateness, of connection in the natural world, isn't it, than in the human world, because it's in the personal human world where our relationship histories and our our comparing mind gets triggered. Can we we let ourselves receive the support also of the human world, of the human sangha here? We're sitting in this field of accumulated kindness and generosity in a stream of teachings that have been passed on from one generation to another, one person to another. in an unbroken chain that goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha didn't, you know, the Buddha too was supported by those who had gone before him. Can we open ourselves to receive, can we connect with the kindness and compassion of our fellow practitioners of the rest of the Sangha here? A reflection that I find helpful in my practice is to reflect about on whose behalf am I here? How far does your care extend, not just in space, but in time? I don't know whether a kinchino would know, but I don't know whether it's a commentarial thing or what, but I know, I have heard that... Our practice is supposed to be able to bear fruit for seven generations backwards. Somehow, we can benefit seven ge- generations back into the past, and that maybe seven in the, seven in the Pali Canon is often a sort of uh, equivalent of a you know sort of a, 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 a moderate number. Yeah. It's not an it's not an infinite number, but it's it's just kind of a substantial number. When we offer our gratitude, our care, our respect to our ancestors, can we feel that sense of them supporting us, our ancestors as maybe our benefactors, the people who have um, helped us to be where we are, who have led to the discovery of wisdom in our lives, the people who've practised here before us, can you let them have your back? Some of your ancestors, the people who've sat here in this hall before you, and this may be you in previous incarnations, or previous manifestations in your life. You know, can you feel the support? Of you on your Zafu and Zabaton five years ago or ten years ago, or some people in this room maybe 30 or more years ago. Yeah, we, we, we have all these, this wealth of um, cultivation behind us. And also, how far does our care extend into the future? This, to me, is a really motivating thing in my practice. Because we can we can get, especially when the voice of doubt creeps in, we can, we can sort of question, you know, is this a very selfish project? What am I doing here? But when I really reflect on the way that this could um, flow out and benefit future generations, it brings a... Uh, Again, a hope, an opening out of the heart, a um, dissolving of some of that obsession around me, my story and what I'm doing. Reflecting that we're all part of this, this web of life and what I'm doing actually has a ripple effect, will have a ripple effect on people who come after us. The person who's moved me a lot in the last few months is Greta Thunberg, the Swedish schoolgirl who started the climate strikes and uh, actually picked up her book in the airport on the way to the States earlier this summer. So it's called Nobody is Too Small to Make a Difference. And there's this picture of her on the back looking very earnest in her uh, yellow hoodie raincoat. And, uh, you know, her message is like, What you're doing here is actually, this is my future that you're uh, caring or not caring about. And when I look at that picture, it's a real wake-up call. You know, what do I want to leave in the world behind me? And you can feel it as a rebuke or a reprimand, but we can also feel it as a plea. It's like, I want to be in relationship with the generations that come after me. Can I give my practice as an offering to them? And that helps me step out of that self-preoccupation. And then, you know, the way that these insights into both the personal insights that Chris was talking about and the universal insights awaken our compassion. Uh, the recognition that each being experiences dukkha both personally in in their uniqueness and also as part of the human story. You know, when I touch that, I can connect with common humanity. We can let ourselves be touched by one another's suffering. And these Brahma-viharas that we've been cultivating in the afternoons, and not just in the afternoons, but we've been focusing on them particularly in the afternoons, but they're really you know, threads of cultivation that run through the entirety of our practice. They're known as the immeasurables, apamana, the immeasurable states, and I, I kind of like to play with that word and not only are they immeasurable but they're the undoers of me- measurement. It's said that greed, hatred and delusion are the makers of measurement and to me the Brahma Viharas are the dissolvers of measurement. They're the dissolvers of the boundaries and separation that we wall us off. Yeah. They invite us out of a fear based relationship to life or a self protective relationship to life and into an open hearted relationship. This is really available when we um, reflect on our interconnectedness or this interdependence of all things, in which the arising and falling of the sense of self is just one aspect of nature. So there's this famous reflection from Nisargadatta that says wisdom says I'm nothing compassion says I'm everything and between these two banks the life of the awakened ones flows. One of the things about the Brahma Viharas is that they apply equally to us as to others and this goes against our Frequent tendency to, you know, think that they're what we have to give out there to other people, and we kind of lose ourselves or neglect ourselves in the process. Even qualities like mudita, appreciative joy, it's so important that we actually include ourselves in that. You know. I remember having an argument with somebody about whether it was proper mudita to rejoice in somebody else's enjoyment of something if I happen to have that thing too. And, uh, I, you know, I think I, one need, we need to be able to appreciate, why, why would I distinguish between my good fortune and their good fortune, yeah. And this recognition of wisdom that your pain in a way is my pain and yet it's also simultaneously not mine and it's not yours. You know, Your pain is yours and it's not yours, it's not personal, is this balance of compassion and equanimity. Another dissolver of this sense of separateness or non-belonging is dana or generosity. And again, here we're cooking ourselves in a field. We're marinating in a field of generosity. We're fed by generosity. I love to contemplate the board in the dining room. Literally... We're being sustained by the generosity of one another. And we can taste what it like, feels like when we act on a generous impulse, how this again softens the sense of self or creates this sense of connection, at homeness of belonging in relationship. A lot of my friendships, I notice when I re- reflect back, have begun with an act of generosity, either on my part or on the other person's part, it sort of creates that um, relationship and connection in a very beautiful way and a particular aspect of generosity that I just recently only had a had kind of a, a a sudden flash of insight around is at the end of the day or the end of a practice period when we dedicate the merit of our practice to others and I noticed that I kind of you know yes I go through this thing in my mind if I dedicate the merit of my practice but it's like I want to hold on to it too <laughs> for me you know I'm going to retain the benefit of this yeah I can share it with you but I'm going to retain the benefit of it and suddenly realized, what would it be like to say, "Okay, I'm willing to go back to 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 zero here. You can have it all, and if I have to start again with the next breath or tomorrow, it feels really different." So just notice that I, that had that all this time had gone unnoticed. That sense of clinging, I have to hold on to the fruits of my practice. But actually, even that we don't, you know, it's all passing through and the fruits of the practice are there anyway. So for me to that, that to, to me, that's a really, um, I'm enjoying trying to do that, give that sense of you can have it all back or you can have it all. I don't have to hold on to any any of it because there's an invitation then to trust that wisdom, that you know good intention whatever is there will carry me forward and of course you know it's just again it's playing with perceptions but it's an interesting perception to play with it I'm willing to give it all away and I really liked also I like on retreat and in life but retreat is a really uh, helpful place to do that to have that sense of and this is connected to that that it's not about me waking up. It's like we are one organism awakening together, and whatever I do in my practice is part of the awakening of this whole organism. Yeah. That we're like cells in the whole, or I could say like an ant colony, but ants aren't so appealing and attractive. Right? But you know, it's about the the waking up of the whole because we're all interconnected. Yeah. And that really helps with this comparing mind that starts rating what I'm doing in relationship to other practitioners. And also that other, the presence of other practitioners is a gift in that it mirrors the delusion in my mind. You know, Our best friends or our best uh, benefactors on retreat are often the people who trigger us into the Into the most powerful reactions because they're there as a, a mirror for our projections and for the different forms that conceit takes. That Chris was speaking of that sense of selfing that arises around, you know, my the way that I manifest in different ways as a body, my wisdom, my skills, my meditation my age, my health status, whatever. And that the conceit is around not only being better and worse than one another, but even the sameness. So there's an interesting facet of conceit in the way that the Buddha spoke about it, is there's also the conceit of being identical with. It's like we're still creating a self and another there. So we need one another to reveal these things. And we need the community also to um, sometimes to borrow our faith and borrow our wisdom from and to find courage and encouragement. So again, in this awakening organism, when I find that my mind is just, you know, doing its crazy thing and I don't know what to do next, there's a certain beauty and safety in letting myself be carried by the whole just kind of surrendering to going with the program and trusting that at some point that you know my um, balance will return internally we can borrow faith and wisdom and courage from one another And this, this sense of the practice not not being for us, but that our investment is in the awakening of the whole, the release of all beings, is the movement of bodhicitta, of the mind of awakening uh, for the benefit of all. That That willingness, and again that goes with that sense of giving it all away i'm willing to abide here until all beings are liberated so everyone else can go through the door before me and that will be fine such a relief it's not a competition to see who can get through there first and of course this is all again illusion because there's no place to go and there's no (laughs) us going there but again we we play with our perceptions so there's just this one organism here in this hall waking up together and we're participants in that and we're participants in life in our lives this is a an open system here And we're not in control of it. Yeah. This is probably, you did, a, I, you did a beautiful practice on equanimity this afternoon. Really um, to reflect how we, we are not in control of experience. And at the same time, everything we do matters. Because everything we do affects something else. It may, be, may or may not be that the flapping of the wings of a butterfly in China created typhoon in Mexico created a typhoon in China. We don't know how the chain of causation is so vast that it 's very difficult to say how much any one thing impacts another, but everything we do affects something else. And within the context of this one organism awakening everything we do matters and so this this refuge this this fact that there or there is some of these refuges, the fact that there is something to be done that we can do and that we whether we feel it or think it or not, we belong, actually brings a responsibility with with it. Uh, there's a there a refuge, and also there a refuge that invites a commitment. It's like we're inhabiting a garden, and the garden is in a constant process of growth and cultivation, an ecosystem, and our responsibility is to this patch of the garden arising here. That's all we can do. What's arising in this body, heart and mind in the moment? It's all we can do and it's our, our responsibility to do it. That is where we find a meaningful participation in our lives and in the life of the whole. It's where we get bound up and it's where we unbind, it's where we find our freedom. It's our place of intimacy with life. Uh, Let's just sit for a few moments and contemplate this together. May we deeply trust and rest in the support that's all around us, that's carrying us. May we feel that and know it. May we draw strength from it to meet the challenges of our lives, of our practice. May we become a refuge for one another. And may we carry the Blessings of those who've gone before us to those who come afterwards. Thank you for your kind attention and for your practice and enjoy some time for walking in the relative cool of the evening and uh, we'll meet again for chanting. Thank you, Thank you for listening.